south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 253, covering the week of March 15th through March 19th, 2021. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Facebook page, and subscribe to our YouTube page. You can find all those social media accounts at our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. That's A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. While you're there, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook, Exploring the Southern Tradition, written by 20 Abbeville Institute scholars. It is our gift to you just for giving us an email. And when you give us an email, you get our Daily Dose of Dixie, Monday through Friday. It's a great way for us to keep in contact with you. Also, when we send out any information about future events or any other things we have going on, you'll be on that list as well. So it's our way to keep in touch with you and your way to keep in touch with us. If you want to support the Institute, click on that support tab at abbevilleinstitute.org. You can give us a one-time gift, an annual gift, or a monthly gift. We exist on your generous contributions alone. So if you like what we do, if you like our podcast, our website, our videos, all of the things that we try to provide for you free of charge, all this stuff is free of charge, you can help us in our mission. Now, our events are not free of charge, and we do have an event coming up uh, in July. It is an in-person event. Our summer school has now been scheduled July 18th through 23rd through the 23rd, excuse me, 2021 in Seabrook Island, South Carolina. It is a great time to be Southern, as we talked about last week, but this particular event is going to focus on the challenge of the Southern tradition in woke America. So how do we continue to talk about the South How do we continue to talk about what's great about the South and what's beneficial about the South in current woke America? So it's going to be a great time. Information about that is available on our website, abbyvalensu.org. Just look in the middle of the page. It says you're invited. Click on that uh, link. It'll take you over to the information about the event. It's going to be a grand time. So July 18th through 23rd in Charleston, Seabrook Island, South Carolina. We are going to be in person this year. No question about it. We we, We canceled actually last year's event because of all the things going on. But this year, we are going to be there, so start making plans. If you have someone that wants to go as a student, we really want to get student involvement. So we do have scholarships available for students. So if you know a an advanced high school undergraduate or graduate student that would benefit from the Abbeville Institute Summer School, make your plans, contact Dr. Livingston, and you should make your plans to go as well. So That is our upcoming event. Of course, we're still doing our Zoom events. We have one at the end of March. It is sold out. But these are things you would know about if you're on the email list. So that's the pitch to talk about the email list. You can also click on that Shop tab under Support at Abbeville Institute, and you can get your Abbeville Institute apparel. It's great, high-quality embroidered stuff. And we have our Abbeville Academy. So if you have missed one of our Zoom conferences, you can go to abbevilleacademy.org abbevilleacademy.org. You can purchase these Zoom conferences after the fact. Um, And we've got three of them there now. We'll have four at the end of this month. So it's a great way to catch up with what we're doing uh, for our Zoom conferences. So all that said, let's talk about what we've got going on at the Institute this week. And we had some really good articles this week. We've gotten some new people writing for the Institute. And I think that's fantastic. The piece on Friday by uh, Avriel Kessler, which is uh, she's. This is her second uh, piece we've published. It's really good. Uh, it's uh, she's uh, interested in Southern literature, and I think that's fantastic. We'd like to have a variety of material on the website, and I think we did that again this week. It's one thing that uh, 
I'm very proud of at the Institute and all the things we're able to do with the variety of material that we get and submissions that we get on a, on all kinds of uh, you know Southern topics. And this week we have the same thing. We have a piece on the war. We've got a piece on uh, military history in the South. Uh, we have a piece that's an old speech on John C. Calhoun. Of course, this week we celebrated John C. Calhoun's birthday, which is fantastic. Uh, and that piece is just phenomenal. We have a piece by Boyd Cathy on, on a film. So that's art. And then, of course, Avril Kessler's uh, little piece on... Uh, it's a short story in some ways, a very short story, but it's an interesting little piece. So I actually want to start with Calhoun. And all this works together because we know in the era of woke politics, and this gets into our summer school topic as well, in the era of woke politics, how do we talk about the Southern tradition? What does the Southern tradition offer modern America? And I think that's a question that people all over the United States are asking, not, not knowing it. They're not realizing what they're really asking is how do we deal with woke politics in the American tradition? And the American tradition in so many ways is a Southern tradition. I've said this many times over on this podcast, going all the way back now to uh, when it first started. How do we talk about the Southern tradition in this? And I mean, we know this was, we saw this coming in 2015 when you had Dylan Roof, and then, of course, after 2017 in Charlottesville. And we know what the what's going on now with the uh, George Floyd situation in 2020. So every few years, seems like every two or three years, there's some new outrage. I just saw a video yesterday of a, of a legislator in Tennessee standing in front of Nathan Bedford Forrest's bus there. How can you expect me to, to put legislation forward when I have to walk past this every day? I don't know. You've been doing it for a while now. That doesn't, doesn't seem to hurt you. <laughs> any day that you've been doing it. Uh, it's just, re- we're, we're, in a, we're in the in the midst of the most ridiculous time in American history. So how do we talk about all these things in that? You've got the military now. You've got uh, the United States military renaming military installations that are named after Confederate heroes. On the other hand, when you have... <laughs> When you have this piece by Benjamin uh, Glazer on, on Tuesday, the greatest of all leathernecks, uh, the Southern military tradition is all, always going to be there. And the South, the stamp the South put on the U.S. military, whether it's from Jefferson Davis or John C. Calhoun. You know, Davis is the one who really created the situation that allowed for the U.S. Army to defeat the South during the war. And Calhoun, as Secretary of War, did a fantastic job in that way as well. So let's start with Calhoun. And this is a speech that was given by Henry Cabot Lodge in 1910 when John C. Calhoun's statue was unveiled or dedicated, I should say, in Statuary Hall in the U.S. Capitol. Now think about it in this way. Imagine anyone today giving this speech. Anyone. I don't care if you're from the South or the North. First of all, you'd never get a Yankee, a Northerner, to do this kind of speech today. And Henry Cabot Lodge was from Massachusetts. And he gave this speech about John C. Calhoun, which was fitting because, of course, Calhoun's one of Calhoun's greatest adversaries was Daniel Webster of Massachusetts, and Webster greatly admired Calhoun. In fact, when Calhoun died in 1850, Webster gave a fantastic eulogy in the Senate on John C. Calhoun. The last of the Romans when Rome survived. And so we have Henry Cabot Lodge returning the favor at the dedication of Calhoun's statue, which is still there. It's now in the crypt. They, they stuck it 
in a place where nobody's really going to see it. But this is South Carolina. The states get to pick what statues are there. And of course, if South Carolina ever removed Calhoun's statue, it would be the greatest blunder they could ever do because Calhoun is the most important political figure to ever come out of that state. And if you're talking about a place, the Capitol, which of course is a political building, well, you need to have your greatest political figure there. And that would be John C. Calhoun. And Lodge talks about this. He says it in the last part of the speech. So think about that in terms of woke politics. You couldn't get away with saying anything positive about John C. Calhoun in the U.S. Capitol today. Now, we know that the picture that circulated around on the January 6th insurrection, which wasn't really much of an insurrection at all. We know that the guy walking around with the Confederate battle flag was walking by a, a portrait of John C. Calhoun. And I think Daniel Webster was also on the wall there, too. Because still, people recognize how important Calhoun was in the U.S. Congress. I mean, you cannot get around this. His tomb, by the way, is the most visited vice president tomb in the United States. Calhoun, of course, served as vice president of the United States. So there's no other vice president that's as visited as John C. Calhoun. It's in Charleston. His statue, of course, has now been taken down in Charleston. And that's a sad thing. And so I'm sure that will be discussed in, uh, in our summer school. But this speech by Lodge, March 1910, of course, just a, a week or so before Calhoun's birthday, as it was dedicated. I want to read some of it because it's just so good. What I want to do, actually, is read... Just a couple of paragraphs. He says, To have been, as Calhoun was, for 40 years, a chief figure in that period of conflict and development, first a leader among the able men who asserted the reality of the national independence and established the place of the United States among the nations of the earth, and afterwards the undisputed chief of those who barred the path of the national movement, implies a man of extraordinary powers, both of mind and character. So he, he, he talks about here the period right after the war, right after the American War for Independence, and you had the, the War of 1812, and how important Calhoun was in that particular period of time. And then Calhoun's work, as he says, to bar the path of the national movement. Now, Calhoun always considered himself a nationalist, and even... Lodge recognizes that later in the speech. He always considered himself a nationalist, a union man. In fact, Calhoun was a nationalist, but he was of it for a nation that benefited all and burdened all equally. He wasn't for a nation dominated by one section or the other. He was a real nationalist. And I think that's where people get Calhoun wrong. Even here, Lodge gets Calhoun wrong in that particular way. Calhoun loved the nation. He loved the American nation. He wasn't a sectionalist. He was a nationalist. But he wanted a nation that actually worked for all the people of the nation, not just one section, New England, over the other. This is why he presented his tariff in 1816. It's why he advocated uh, the bonus bill after the 
chartering of a new bank of the United States. This is why he was for these things, because he thought that that would be the best for the entire nation. But when the South came under attack in ways that were purely sectional, Calhoun bristled at that because that wasn't real nationalism. That was sectionalism. I think you could say that Calhoun was just as much of a nationalist as George Washington. Without question. Because Washington recognized in his farewell address that you can't have sections battling amongst it, and Calhoun was fully aware of this. You can't have policies that benefit one section over the other and call that nationalism because it's not that. That's the important thing to understand about Calhoun. If you ask Clyde Wilson, again, who was the greatest living Calhoun scholar, in fact, the greatest Calhoun scholar in the history of Calhoun scholars, he'll tell you this. He'll tell you this. He'll say it. Look, Calhoun was always a unionist. He was always a real nationalist, but not the way that we think of Daniel Webster or Henry Clay. Henry Clay wasn't necessarily a nationalist. You could say that he was more of a nationalist than Webster because Henry Clay at least was from the South and he looked at it perhaps in that way, kind of a Jeffersonian nationalism, which was there, you know, if you look at Jefferson's second term and you look at the period right after that, Jefferson, uh, these American system people like Henry Clay, he was a national Republican. That's what Henry Clay really was. So in some ways, he was more in line with this early Calhoun nationalism, but he didn't recognize how Clay failed to recognize how the New England section was starting to take over this idea of the American system and how that would just benefit one section and burden others unequally. But what Lodge says here is so important. A man who has this kind of influence has extraordinary powers of both mind and character. And so he says this, he merits not only the high consideration which history accords, the high consideration which history accords, not this guy is the defender of slavery, as Samuel Flag Bemis says, or, uh, you know, he is just the uh, arch enemy, the American heretic. No. The consideration with history accords, but it, should, it is also well that we should honor his memory here and turning aside from affairs of the moment should recall him and his work that we may understand what he, who he, what he was and what he meant. We should honor his memory and we should understand who he was and what he meant. He was preeminently a strong man and strong men, leaders of mankind who shape public thought and decide public action are very apt to exhibit in a high degree the qualities of the race from which they spring. Now, you might look at this and say, oh my gosh, there's Lodge, he's a racist. He's talking about, essentially, the Scots-Irish. And he gets into that, (laughs) in a lot of this. The Scottish character that he talks about. So he gets into Calhoun's political career and how important that was to the American uh, movement forward in the early 19th century. And he also brings up something else that's very interesting about Calhoun. He says it in this paragraph, I've, I've thus referenced 
to the cha- change in Mr. Calhoun's position solely because of its historical significance, marking as it does the beginning of a new epoch in the great conflict between the contending principles of nationalism and separatism. In his own day, he was accused of inconsistency, and the charge was urged and repelled with the heat of usual to such disputes. Nothing as a rule is more futile or more utterly unimportant than efforts to prove inconsistency. It is a favorite resort in debate, and may therefore be supposed that it is considered effective in impressing the popular mind. Historically, it is a charge which has little weight unless conditions lend to an importance which is never inherent in the mere fact itself. If no man ever changed his opinions, if no one was open to the teachings of experience, human progress would be arrested and the world would stagnate in all intellectual lethargy. Inconsistency, Emerson has declared to be the bugbear of weak minds, and this is entirely true of those who, dreading the accusation, shrink from adopting an opinion or a faith which they believe to be true, but which to which they have formerly been opposed. Mr. Calhoun defined inconsistency long before the day when the charge was brought against him, and with fine precision of thought, which was so characteristic of all his utterances. With fine precision of thought, which was so characteristic of all his utterances. I mean, Lodge is just heaping the praise on Calhoun. He said this in 1814. Men cannot go straight forward, he said in the House in 1814. Quote, but must regard the obstacles which impede their course. Inconsistency consists in a charge of conduct when there is, um, I'm sorry, a change of conduct when there is no change of circumstances which justify it, end quote. So he's saying, look, if there's a change of circumstances, you've got to change course. Now, as I said, and I think that this charge of inconsistency against Calhoun is, is uh, not very valid either because Calhoun was never inconsistent. He always was in favor of the original Federal Republic, a union of states, and that which benefits and burdens the union equally. Nationalism in 1816 fit that bill. By the time he got to the 1830s and 40s, he recognized what was happening in America and that we had one section seeking to control the other through the, through the levers of power in Congress. And he was not going to let that happen. He was not a separatist. He was a nationalist in the old sense. And that, I think, is the important part of it. Now, I want to get to the end of this particular speech. He says, We catch the same note in the words of Calhoun on March 5th, 1850, when he declared, quote, If I am judged by my acts, I trust I shall be found as firm a friend of the Union as any man within it. Despite all he had said and done, he still clung to the Union he had served so long, and when as the month closed and he lay upon his deathbed, the thought of the future, dark with menace, was still with him, and he was heard to murmur, The South, the poor South, God knows what will become of her. Imagine what he's saying now. The South, the poor South, God knows what will become. What will become of the South now? So they passed away, the three great senators and the vast silent forces which moved mankind and settled the fate of nations, marched forward to their predestined end. Then he says this, and these last two paragraphs are just so good. This is Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts, not Ben Tillman of South Carolina, or, you know, somebody else from the South. This is Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts. We do well here 
We do, I'm sorry, we do well to place a, here a statue of Calhoun. I would that he could stand with none but his peers about him and not elbowed and crowded by the temporarily notorious and the illustrious obscure. <laughs> I would that he could stand with none but his peers about him and not elbowed and crowded by the temporarily notorious and the illustrious obscure. Think about the group that these idiots and the woke left are placing now in Statuary Hall. If they had their way, Lodge would call them the temporarily notorious and illustrious obscure. Calhoun is not that. He needs to be with men of his like, which would be Washington and Jefferson and Madison, John Adams. If you want to go to Northern, Sam Adams, John Hancock. These are Calhoun's men. Those are Calhoun's men. Lodge continues, his statue here is of right. His statue here is of right. Imagine somebody standing up in the U.S. Congress today and saying this in the Senate. John C. Calhoun's statue is here of right. He was a really great man. One of the great figures of our history. In that history, he stands out clear, distinct, commanding. There is no trace of the demagogue about him. This is exactly right. Clyde Wilson has called him a statesman, the greatest of all American statesmen, because a statesman is someone who says things that are uncomfortable because they have to be said, and Calhoun was saying those things. He was a bold as well as a deep thinker, and he had to the full the courage of his convictions. The doctrines of socialism were as alien to him as the worship of commercialism. He, quote, raised his mind to truths. He believed that statesmanship must move on a high plane. And he could not conceive that mere money-making and money-spending were the highest objects of ambition in the lives of men or nations. What a beautiful paragraph. That should be planted on every idiot that's in the U.S. Congress today. It should be sent to their desk. You want to be a great man? John, I mean, look, John F. Kennedy recognized this. Called Calhoun one of the greatest senators in the history of the United States. He recognized it. But you see, we've even lost those leftists. Because they've all been infected with the disease of wokeism. He concludes he was the greatest man South Carolina has given to the nation. That in itself is no slight praise. For from the days of the Lawrences, the Pickneys, the Rutledges, the time of Moultrie and Sumter and Marion to the present day, South Carolina has always been conspicuous in peace and war for the force, the ability, and the character of the men who have served her and given to her name its high distinction in our history. You can't even say these people anymore because all these people were just racists and white supremacists, slave owners. All of those people they just listed there, that Lodge listed, they would all be thrown in the dustbin of American history if the woke idiots have any say in it. And Calhoun is certainly there as well. But Calhoun was much more even than this. He was one of the most remarkable men, one of the greatest minds the American public life can show. It matters not that before the last tribunal, the verdict went against him. 
that the extreme doctrines to which his imperious logic carried him have been banned and barred. The man remains greatly placed in our history. The unyielding courage, the splendid intellect, the long devotion to the public service, the pure, unspotted private life are all there, are all here with us now, untouched and unimpaired for after ages to admire. And then the end, applause on the floor and in the galleries. People stood and applauded Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts for saying this about John C. Calhoun. It almost, I mean, it, it gives me goosebumps to read this. Because imagine somebody doing this today. I can't. I can't. This is when history to me comes alive. And what really interested me in history and why I wanted to do it, not because of something else, but because of this. This is what makes people, drives people into history, not everything is bad, we're all terrible, America's bad. Nobody wants to read that stuff. It's why historical sites who are doing all these things are losing visitors left and right, because nobody wants to read guilt on everything. They want to hear about great men. Oh my gosh, that man is great. I want to know more about him. And we've been conditioned now. Oh, well, we got to talk about his failings first. He was a slave owner. He said these bad things that were racist. Okay, so we don't agree with that. But what? where is he great? Yeah, he was great. So I spent a lot of time on Calhoun because it was his birthday week. But I want to get to the couple other pieces here. The South is also the only place in America, the only place in America where crimes against humanity could be committed or, and, and nobody cares. And Valerie Protopapas' piece on Monday, Crimes Against Humanity, talks about Southerners who died in Northern prisoner of war camps. And the piece by Boyd Cathy Firetrail talks about the swath of destruction that uh, Sherman conducted across the South at the end of the war. And it's funny because uh, it was an email thread. And I think it was, uh, I can't remember who said it, but the South just deserved it. I mean, this is what Americans think. They just deserved it. Those Southerners in those prisons, they deserved it. They're traitors. Those people in the South that got their, their, had their homes burned down and their lives destroyed, they deserved it. They deserved it all. You see, Calhoun deserves to be put, his statue blown up and taken down. He deserves it because of who he was. These people deserve it all. They deserve war crimes. They should have gotten worse. And you even have the neocons saying this kind of stuff. They got off easy. 60-mile-wide swath of destruction through Georgia, that's easy. Should have been worse. They should have hung every single one of those Southerners. This is the position. All those people that died in Camp Douglas in Illinois, they deserved it. And I think Valerie Protopapas does a wonderful job showing that in this particular case, the, uh, the horrors of northern prison camps. The worst thing about northern prison camps and the, oh, what about, uh, what about Andersonville? Eh, this was willful. She makes the point, and this has been proven correct, shown true, that the men who were guarding the prisoners had the exact same rations and living conditions as the men who were in the camp. They were starving, too. And they had no means to take care of these people. Whereas in the North, they had the means and they refused to do it. I'll never forget when I was doing research for my 
graduate work in Delaware, on Camp Delaware, Fort Delaware, which was uh, this infamous prison in on a place called Peapatch Island near Wilmington, Delaware. And there was ladies' associations around Wilmington that were trying to get supplies to these prisoners because they were being denied supplies by the Union government. And so the people of Wilmington were trying to get them humane, humane supplies because they didn't have it. They were drinking mosquito-infested water, and there were stacks of bodies outside the fort. They weren't being clothed properly and taken care of. The place was awful. But you see, northerners had the, the guards. They had plenty of rations. They were doing fine. But the prisoners were not. It was willful mistreatment. That's the difference. Southern prisoners starved, or I'm sorry, northern prisoners starved and southern prisoner of war camps because the South didn't have anything to take care of its own soldiers, let alone thousands of prisoners. And the Union refused to exchange prisoners. And then you look at the military occupation of the South and, of course, all the destruction, not just in Georgia, but also in Alabama, in Mississippi, Louisiana, the Carolinas, the year-long bombardment of Charleston, South Carolina during the war just because they wanted target practice. I mean, this is what was going on. All this stuff works together. And when you put that together with Benjamin Glazer's piece on uh, John Lejeune, it depends on where you, uh, how you would say his name. I've always said it Lejeune. There's other people that say it's different. But Lejeune was the, is the quintessential Marine. And this book, The Greatest of All Leathernecks by Joseph Simon, published by uh, LSU Press in 2019, sounds like, I've not, I've not read it, sounds like a fantastic book, gets into the fact that Lejeune could not be Lejeune without the South. He was who he was because of where he grew up. He was born right after the war, and became such, I mean, just the Marine. As uh, Glazer says, Lejeune's early childhood on the shores of the Mississippi River shaped who he would become as he brought victory at Mount Blanc, or, I'm sorry, Blanc Mont, and reorganized the Marine Con- uh, Corps from sea galloping bellhops of the most elite amphibious force the world has ever seen. And Lejeune wouldn't be Lejeune without the South. So, this is a great story, and it's how important the South is to our understanding of American history. I mean, Cabot Lodge, Henry Cabot Lodge saying, look, American history would not be the same without Calhoun. American history would not be the same without Lejeune. There's lots of stories in the South. Lots of stories that need to be told. And that's why I like Averill Kessler's piece, I Listen. It talks about moving to Mississippi and all the things that you get out of this. And this is what we try to do at the Institute. And it's, I, I want to finish with this. Uh, and she says what the important thing about the Southern tradition, where we can get this. And she says, look, slowly, very slowly, as I, I also learned to remember, especially when a musical Southern voice told a story that outpaced Robin Hood by miles and made the stilted language of Treasure Island seem dreary and tiresome. I took care to pay attention when someone explained how best to avoid an aggressive rooster or two women named Sister Baby and Tiny Bell discuss how to fry up a skillet of okra. 
I stood close and eavesdropped as Big Henry told his son Little Henry, I'm older than you, but I can still cut up better than a pair of scissors. I listen because wonderful stories are still here. They are alive and authentic. The key word, authentic. They tap me on the shoulder and peek around corners, quietly whispering, save the old stories, the new ones too. And while you're at it, create some of your own. So I'll keep listening with, when crickets thrum in the evening and a hoot owl wakes me at dawn. I'll look out my window when rain rattles through magnolia leaves or a cranky old mockingbird calls at every blue jay he sees. I'll lean in when a friend brags, I know everybody in town and who their daddy is. Most of all, I'll listen because someone once said, Welcome home, little girl. Open your ears and listen. And that is what we're doing here. We're listening. That speech on Calhoun, we're listening. We're listening about the crimes against humanity and fire trail and the greatest of all leathernecks. We're just listening to these things because that's the tradition. Listening is the tradition. That's why I love this particular piece as well. Hope you enjoyed this week at the Abbeville Institute. Until next time, good day.